My name is Eli. I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. I grew up in Cyprus and currently I live in the United States. Yes, um, well, I was only seven years old when my family traveled from Lebanon to Cyprus due to the civil war in our homeland. It was difficult to leave the only area I'd known. And I remember missing my family and friends still in Lebanon. It was a daily struggle that lasted years. We felt alone in a new place with a completely different culture and major language barrier. My family and I lived day to day without any stability with only hope that we would be able to survive and make it another day. All I knew up to that point is Lebanon in a time of war. For me, living in war was life. It was normal. For many years, my family and I were considered aliens, even as we continued to strive and work hard to make Cyprus our new home. As a location, I miss Cyprus now. It's where I grew up and spent most of my life until I moved here. But I do consider my home to be heaven. Um, yet in this world, my home is where my family lives. I am uh, grateful for Ali and his willingness to share his story. Ali's a member here of our congregation and a good personal friend. And we're going to hear a lot from Ali in the coming weeks, more of his story and stories from other, in our, other people in our church like him who know what it's like to live as a stranger. Because life can be tough when you are living as a stranger in a foreign land. I heard about two brothers one time who wanted to start a bungee jumping business down in Mexico. So they drove down south of the border and they set up their bungee jumping rig on a bridge high above this small village. Now these brothers, they didn't know the culture, they didn't know the language, and so when a small crowd started to gather below, they figured they'd just give them a demonstration of how it works. So one of the brothers straps himself in and jumps down off the bridge, down towards the crowd. He bounces back up, but he's got a bloody nose. Bounces back down a second time, comes back up, and the brother notices this time he's got a bloody nose and he's bruised all over his face. He goes back down, bounces up a third time, and he's got a bloody nose, bruised all over his face, and he's black and blue all over his back. So his brother grabs him off. He says, hey, 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 what's going on? Was the bungee cord too long? He says, no, bungee cord was just perfect. But what in the world is a pinata? <laughs> Takes a minute, there you go. Yeah, that's a groaner. Life can be tough. When you're living as a stranger in a foreign land, I grew up back in Missouri, but during my fifth grade year, my dad took a sabbatical and he moved us to Kentucky for a year. And I remember in Kentucky, I felt like a foreigner. I just felt like I stuck out. I mean, I didn't have that Southern drawl. You know, I didn't have it. I didn't like banjo music. I didn't own any camouflage. I had all my teeth, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Life can be tough when you're living as a stranger in a foreign land. We're starting a new sermon series today called Strangers, and we're going through the book of 1 Peter because Peter wants us to realize that we are not from here. This world is not our home. We are the people of God, the people of heaven. And so the book of 1 Peter is all about asking and answering this question, how do we function as the people of God in this world? How do we relate to the world around us? Do we withdraw? Do we try to be like everybody else? How far do we go when we're trying to engage with people? How do we function as salt and light? How do we function as these people that God has scattered throughout the world to try to build his kingdom? How do we live as the people of God, as strangers in a world that is not our home? 
So without further ado, let's dive into the text today. First Peter chapter one, verses one and two. It's not very much. Actually, would you just read it out loud with me? Let's read it together. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. I didn't even prep you guys for those big words and you nailed them. Your English teachers would be proud. Nice job. When we read the Bible, it's important to ask some key questions of the text, just like you learned back in school. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. So we're gonna do that today. I wanna let five big questions guide our discussion as we work our way through the text. And the questions are these. Who's the letter from? Who's the letter to? Why was it written? Why are we strangers? And how do we live as strangers? Those are the questions. Let's start with question number one. Who is the letter from? Well, we just read it in our text. Verse one says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So this letter is from Peter. Peter was one of Jesus's 12 disciples. He's one of my absolute favorite guys in scripture. In fact, my parents really liked the apostle Peter too. And so when I was born, they wanted to name me Peter, no lie. But then my name would have been Peter Proctor. (laughs) And my initials would have been (laughs) PP. And I would have got beaten up on the playground. So so they named me Luke. So now I just got beaten up on the playground because I was a weirdo, not because of my name. So this is a true story. (laughs) But in the Bible, the guy Peter, he was a man of these really high highs and these really low lows. Peter started out as just this ordinary guy. He was a fisherman and Jesus called him to follow him. So Peter left his home to follow Jesus and Peter got to do some amazing things. He walked on the water, but then he sank for lack of faith. And Peter said the famous line, Jesus, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then a few verses later, Jesus calls him Satan. <laughs> And then Peter, Peter, he gets to see Jesus' glory at the transfiguration. He gets to be with Jesus on the last night of his life in the garden. It's Peter who says, hey, Jesus, everybody else may abandon you, but not me, bro. I die for you. But then Peter falls asleep, and he does deny Jesus three times, and Jesus dies. But then we know on the third day, Jesus resurrects. He comes back to life and he reinstates Peter. He commissions Peter as one of the leaders of the early church. And so in the book of Acts, we see it's Peter who's filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's Peter who preaches the first Christian sermon and 3,000 people are saved. And one time, Peter, he gets captured and gets put on death row, but an angel rescues him. And another time, Peter heals a lame man. And another time, Peter raises a dead girl back to life. I mean, this is the guy who's writing this letter. He's one of the greatest teachers and leaders of the early church. And we get a window into his mind for the next few weeks. It's gonna be pretty cool. And right off the bat, Peter says, hey, I'm an apostle, which means I'm a delegate with a message from on high. And this letter is that message. So question number two, who's the letter to? Let's look back at the text here. First Peter, verses one and two says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So the recipients of the letter are living in these five provinces with the big, hard-to-pronounce names that are located in what was called Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. Here's a map, and we can see, actually, that in the text, the cities are listed in the order in which a messenger would have traveled from province to province, distributing this letter from church to church. 
And there's a lot of clues here in the letter that lead us to believe that Peter is writing to Christians with a Gentile background. In other words, he's writing to people who aren't from a Jewish background like Peter himself. These people weren't born into the faith. No, they they grew up, for the most part, worshiping the pagan gods around them like everybody else. Except something happened to them. Somewhere along the way, they met Jesus and now they're different. And so their families and their friends and their neighbors are starting to notice and they're thinking, well, what's up with you? Have you changed all of a sudden? Why are you so different? So that leads us to question number three. Why was this letter written? One big reason, to remind them who they are. To remind them who they are, to remind them that they are strangers. Our text says it today, calls them exiles. Other versions say that they are foreigners, sojourners, pilgrims, aliens. You can tell your kids we talk about aliens at church today. (laughs) Peter's reminding these people that they don't belong here. We don't belong here. This is not our home. And the Bible actually speaks consistently about this from way back in the Old Testament. David says it, 1 Chronicles 29. He says, we are foreigners and strangers in your sight. As were all our ancestors, our days on earth are like a shadow. The psalmist says it, Psalm 119, he says, I'm a stranger on earth. Jesus himself says it, praying for his followers in John chapter 17. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Paul says it beautifully, Philippians chapter three. He says, their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says that he's talking about some of the forefathers of the Jewish faith. And he says in Hebrews chapter 11, he says, they were foreigners and strangers on earth. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. James says it, James chapter four. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God. And John says it similarly, 1 John chapter two, he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. And Peter's gonna say it over and over and over and over again in this letter. You're not from here. This world is not your home. You may be a citizen of the empire of Rome. You may be living there now, but really you're a citizen of the empire of heaven. That's where you belong. And they needed that reminder. You see, Peter, he's writing to these Christians who are still living in their hometowns. They weren't literal foreigners. They spoke the same language. They wore the same clothes. They had the same accent as people around them, except now they're following Jesus. And so Peter's saying, now there's something different, and you're gonna feel like a stranger, even in your own hometown, and you're gonna suffer for it. You're gonna face persecution. You see, At this point, when Peter's writing this letter, it's about the year A.D. 62. It's about 30 years after Jesus. And it wasn't official Roman government policy yet to persecute Christians. That would come much later. And so the persecution that these believers are facing didn't come from the Roman state. It came from their neighbors. Because in those days, religion permeated every aspect of your everyday life. In the Roman world, there was no such thing as separation of church and state. It was all intertwined. Everywhere you go, there's statues and idols and shrines and temples lining the streets and in the marketplace and even in the homes. 
You go to the market to buy some meat for dinner that night, except, well, that meat has probably been sacrificed to idols at one of those pagan temples. So you're a Christian, what are you gonna do? You don't wanna support that industry. And then most of the houses in those days had a little shrine in them. And it would be the job of the woman of the house every day to make an offering at that shrine, a little bit of bread, a little bit of wine, or a pinch of incense, just to make sure you're all good, you're all covered there with the God. Then on special days, birthdays, holidays, anniversaries, buying a house, things like that, you'd wanna make sure that you made an offering to the appropriate God or goddess so that your activities would be blessed. And if you had a job, if you're like a tradesman of some kind, if you're a blacksmith or a carpenter or a silversmith, you would belong to a trade guild which was an association of people who shared your trade. And that was how you made connections and networked and got business and got hired. That's how your business stayed alive and functioned, except well, those trade guilds meet in the pagan temples to have their meetings and their parties, the temple of the appropriate god or goddess of your trade. And then you had to be sure to worship the patron god of your town to make sure the civic health was good. And you also had to make sure to worship the emperor because the emperor Nero claimed to be divine, so you have to pray to him too. So you're a Christian now. How do you live in this world? How do you function as the people of God in this world that's saturated with pagan religion and idolatry? How do you do it? And then on the flip side of that, let's say that you're a normal, everyday Roman citizen of Galatia or Cappadocia, and, well, your cousin just became a Christian. And you're starting to get a little skeptical because you've, you've heard things about those Christians. Rumor has it. They're atheists. They only believe in one God. Can you believe that? Rumor has it they practice some crude form of genital mutilation called circumcision. Rumor has it they're incestuous, calling each other brother and sister and greeting each other with a holy kiss. Rumor has it they're cannibals. They get together and they eat the flesh and drink the blood of some guy every week. And worst of all, worst of all, they don't even pray to our gods. They are jeopardizing the health of our entire society. They're putting it all at risk because they refuse to pray to our gods. And they claim, they claim, believe this, that there's only one God and that our gods aren't even real. And they claim that there's only one king of kings and it ain't the emperor. Now that's treason talk right there. Peter's saying, hey, if you believe this, you're gonna suffer you better be ready to face persecution for it. Because Peter, he knows about persecution as well as anybody. See, Peter is writing this letter from the city of Rome itself, where the emperor Nero was in charge. And in the year AD 64, just shortly after this letter was written, there was a great fire, and the city of Rome burned much of Rome to the ground. And then conveniently, the emperor Nero built his new palace on a lot of that ground where Rome had been burned. So a lot of people suspected that the Emperor Nero was actually the one who set Rome on fire there to clear some space for his new palace. So Nero needed to get the suspicion off of himself. He needed a scapegoat. So who did he blame? Oh, the Christians. He blamed the Christians. They're the ones who started the fire, that new strange little group that doesn't pray to the gods like everybody else. And so in the year 64 AD, Nero started going after the Christians, killing them for his personal entertainment. He'd have the Christians crucified like that guy that they worshiped that they thought was God. He'd have them thrown into the arena to be mauled by dogs and lions. He'd have them put up on stakes and burned alive as human torches to provide lighting for his evening festivities. In fact, just a couple years after this letter was written, Peter himself would be crucified in Rome under the reign of Nero. The apostle Paul would be beheaded in Rome under the reign of Nero. Nero. 
So when Peter is warning these Christians that they're gonna suffer for their faith, that living as strangers isn't easy, he knows what he's talking about and he means it. In fact, pound for pound, the book of 1 Peter refers to suffering more than any other book in the New Testament. Peter talks about suffering at least 15 times, using eight different Greek words for it. And yet we read these verses. What does Peter call these people? He doesn't call them outcasts. He doesn't call them the suffering ones. He doesn't call them the socially excluded. He calls them the elect. Exiles, yes, but God's people. That's your identity. That's who you are. Their identity was not found in their suffering, but in their savior. Their name was not found in their social standing, but in their spiritual status. Sure, Peter says, the world may call you atheists and cannibals and outcasts and traitors, but you are God's people. And I think that's the message we need to hear today, church. Because you may play many different roles in your life. You may go by many things. You may be called many different things. Husband, wife, mom, dad, son, daughter, grandparent, single, married, male, female, boss, coach, Teacher, student, nurse, basketball player, Colts fan, Purdue fan, middle class, middle aged, teenage, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, whatever they call you, those things aren't bad, they just aren't first. You are God's people. And that is your primary identity. Everything else is secondary at best. This is your family, church. This right here is your tribe. If you're here this morning and you claim to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, then that means that you are a stranger even here in the United States of America because that is only your secondary citizenship. You are first a citizen of heaven and that is where you pledge your ultimate allegiance. You're God's people. Remember who you are, church. So that begs the question then. If we are strangers in this world, why? Why are we strangers? Well, quite simply, because God chose you. We talked about this in our Exodus series, how God chose Israel to be his special people in a special relationship with him. He chose them to be the ones to represent him to the rest of the world. Not because Israel was awesome, they weren't. Not because they deserved it, they didn't. But because God was gracious. When Moses was explaining this special relationship, this chosenness to Israel, he said it to them like this, Deuteronomy chapter seven. Moses says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his special people, his treasured possession. And now God is inviting all people, not just Israel, into that special chosen covenant relationship when they believe in Jesus. Peter says it like this in the text we just read. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So in other words, God knew from before all time that you were his plan. God knew before he ever measured out the waters or hung the stars in the sky that he was gonna send Jesus and that you were gonna follow Jesus and that God was gonna send you with your special gifts and your personality and your experiences, your uniqueness, and he was gonna put you right where you are right now, your family, your job, your neighborhood, your activities. He chose you. 
And so we come to our final question today. If that's true, if God chose you, if God chose us to be his special people, how then do we live as strangers? How do we do it? Let's look back, look back at the text. We'll read it one more time. Verses one and two says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. So if you'll notice here, we have the whole trinity here. You've been chosen by God the Father to be obedient to God the Son through God the Holy Spirit. Peter says, hey, when you were saved by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus, when you were saved because you put your faith in the blood of Jesus Christ poured out for you upon the cross, you're sprinkled with his blood, you're forgiven of your past and assured of your future, and then and then you get this grace. You get God's grace through the blood of Jesus on the cross. That's the only way you get grace, and grace is the only way you get peace, by the way, church. If you're looking for peace, it only comes through the grace of Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross. And so then when you get God's grace poured out in the blood of Jesus and this peace, he then fills us with his Holy Spirit, Peter says, who does this sanctifying work in us. Now that's a big word, but all it really means is that God's gonna spend the rest of your life making you more and more holy, more and more set apart, more and more like Jesus. And how does the Spirit do it? By helping us be obedient, by helping us obey Jesus. So in other words, every time you feel Jesus calling you to do something, every time you feel convicted by a sermon, every time you see a command in God's word, every time you feel that gentle nudge of the Holy Spirit in your gut, you say yes every single time. A stranger in this world is someone who says yes to Jesus even when it doesn't make sense. And we have to train ourselves to do that. We have to train ourselves to say yes to Jesus every single time. Peter had to train himself to do it. One time earlier in his life, Peter was a fisherman. He'd been fishing all night long, hadn't caught a thing. Sounds like my kind of fisherman. He'd been fishing all the time. He's exhausted by the morning. And then this hillbilly carpenter comes along. After he just gets back, he says, hey, let's go out again. Let's try it one more time. And if I'm Peter, (laughs) I'm thinking, look, buddy, if I need like a solid oak nightstand or something, I'll have you build it. (laughs) But don't tell me how to do my job. I'm the fisherman. But Peter says, look, we've been out all night and we haven't got a nibble. But scripture says, he says this, but if you say so, I will let down the nets. And he got the catch of his life, more fish than he could handle. It didn't make sense to obey Jesus right there, but Peter trained himself to be a man who said yes to Jesus every single time. So much so that later on in the book of Acts, when the big dogs of the Jewish faith, the most powerful men around, are coming down hard on Peter, and they're saying, you gotta knock it off. You gotta quit telling people about Jesus now. And Peter says, look, 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 you don't understand. We must obey God rather than men. Peter trained himself to be a man who would say yes to Jesus every single time, even when it didn't make sense. Here's what I mean. There was a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he was a German pastor and theologian in the early 1900s. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer ended up being executed uh, for his faith um, by the Nazis for his resistance to the Third Reich. And while he was in Nazi Germany, Bonhoeffer, he started this underground seminary of people who would take Jesus seriously, people who would not be corrupted by the Nazi propaganda. 
And so the students at the seminary, they lived an incredibly intense life of training and Bible study and spiritual activities. They soaked themselves in scripture day in and day out. One time, one of Bonhoeffer's friends came to the seminary to visit, and he saw the way that they were living there, and he thought that it might just be a little bit too intense. He said to Bonhoeffer, can't you just lighten up a little bit? Is a little leisure time here and there a bad thing? And in response, Bonhoeffer just took his friend in a boat and rowed the boat across the river. When they got across the river, they got out of the boat and climbed up this hill and looked off into the distance where they could see Nazi fighter planes taking off and landing and troops drilling, soldiers everywhere. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer went on to explain that, no, we can't, because this must be stronger than that. This must be stronger than that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer had the audacity to believe that a little ragtag group of a few dozen people training to say yes to Jesus could somehow make a dent in the dark world of Nazi Germany. And the amazing thing is, it did. Because they trained themselves to be people who said yes to Jesus. This must be stronger than that. We are that group of people. And we must train ourselves to say yes to Jesus, even when it doesn't make sense to the world. Because listen, you've heard it as much as I had. The world's gonna preach to you and say, be true to yourself. Do what makes you happy. Nobody else can tell you what to do. Nobody else can tell you what's true for you. Do your own thing. Be you. And when we hear him say that, we say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm following Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him, and I'm saying yes to him. So say yes to Jesus, church. Say yes to Jesus. And pray for the people who annoy you. Say yes to Jesus and seriously consider fostering or adopting a kid. Say yes to Jesus and refuse any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. Say yes to Jesus and give 10% of your income right off the top to God's people. Say yes to Jesus and commit to telling the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth every single time at work, even if it hurts you. Say yes to Jesus and consider volunteering your time here at the church. Say yes to Jesus and consider going on a mission trip next year. Say yes to Jesus and seriously consider if he might be calling you to go into ministry or to go to the mission field. Say yes to Jesus and open up your home to that neighbor who's a little different from you and get to know their story. Say yes to Jesus and commit to not complaining or speaking negatively or perversely or coarsely even when everybody else around you is. Say yes to Jesus and confess your addiction. Say yes to Jesus and serve your spouse even when they don't deserve it. Say yes to Jesus and be gentle with your kids and teach them and instruct them in the way of the Lord even when it's easier not to. Say yes to Jesus and share your story and your testimony when you have an open door. Let's become a church that says yes to Jesus. (laughs) Because if we can do that, If you become a person who says yes to Jesus, I promise you, you'll be a stranger in this world. (laughs) And people are gonna notice. And little by little, things can change. One more story, then I'm done. A few hundred years after this letter was written, there was a monk by the name of Telemachus living in a remote village in the Roman Empire. And one day, Telemachus was praying, and he felt like God was calling him to go to Rome. And he didn't know why, It didn't make sense, but he said yes. And so Telemachus began his journey to Rome. 
A few weeks later, he arrived in Rome only to find that the streets of the great city were packed with excited crowds of people heading somewhere. And so Telemachus said, okay, I'll follow along. And he followed the crowds until eventually they arrived at the Colosseum. And they went in. And what Telemachus saw there broke his heart. He saw the gladiators line up before the emperor and say, we who are about to die salute you. And he realized what was about to happen. As had happened hundreds of times before, these men were about to turn on each other and kill each other in cold blood just for the entertainment of the bloodthirsty crowds. And Telemachus couldn't let that stand. So he said yes to Jesus. He started shouting, in the name of Christ, stop! He kept shouting, working his way down through the crowd. Eventually, he got to the wall, jumped over the wall and onto the floor of the arena. He ran towards the gladiators. In the name of Christ, stop! The crowd saw this strange little man running around and shouting and they began to laugh. They just thought it was part of the show. But Telemachus ran over. He kept begging the gladiators, in the name of Christ, stop! And quickly, the laughter of the crowd turned to jeers. And somebody shouted, run him through, kill him. So the story goes, one of the gladiators shoved him out of the way, but Telemachus kept shouting, in the name of Christ, stop. And so one of the gladiators drew his sword and with a flash of his blade, he slashed Telemachus across the stomach, his blood spilling out. He sank to the sand on his knees. And with his dying breath, he cried out, in the name of Christ, Stop. And then he died. And it's said that at that moment, a hush came over the crowd. Gone were the jeers, gone was the bloodlust, replaced instead by a stunned silence. Just then somebody up in the top got up from their seat and made their way to the exit. And eventually, slowly, one by one, everybody followed him. They all left their seats and filed out of the Colosseum. And that was the end of the gladiator games. Never again would men kill each other for sport in the Roman arena. All because one man had the courage to say yes to Jesus, to live as a stranger, It's a church. Let's say yes. Will you pray with me? Holy, exalted, high King of heaven, we come before you, humbled that you would choose us, that you would call us your people that you would entrust us with the mission of building your kingdom here on earth. And we want to say yes to you, Lord. And we recognize now that, that we can only say yes to you because Jesus, you said yes. Jesus, you came and you lived among us as a stranger, as a foreigner. You were not of this world. And you showed us how to live here on this earth as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And then when the Father called you to do the most difficult thing of all time, Jesus, you said yes. You said, not my will, but yours be done. And it is 
through that decision, through the giving of your life, the pouring out of your blood, that we are saved. And we are now filled with your Holy Spirit who does his sanctifying work in us. And it is my prayer right now, God, that you would pour out your spirit and that your spirit would fill us and prompt us and convict us and move us. Father, show us who you want us to be. Show us what you want us to do. And give us the courage to say yes. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.